Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Define and Empower's podcast, Black Feminist Hotline. I'm Amanda Bennett, the co-founder and creative director of Define and Empower. We're a Black feminist education and consulting collective that places the varied perspectives of Black women at the center of all of our work. This podcast extends the work we do at Define and Empower by giving you, our listener, access to authentic, creative, and honest conversations between Black women and other women of color. This week, I had the chance to have a conversation with Temi Lasad Anderson. She's a master's student in the UK. She's also a critical internet scholar who focuses on race, tech, and digital culture. I hope you enjoy our conversation about a wide range of topics, including grief, mental health, relationships, and our visions of a Black feminist future. White people have the luxury to be able to push away things that make them feel uncomfortable. And I think that would make them feel uncomfortable is having compassion and empathy. So it's like, how do I think beyond my own immediate needs that are imposed by a false sense of scarcity under capitalism to be able to think in the future of, oh, how would a woman of color benefit from having this platform that I probably shouldn't have and don't deserve? And even being able to sit with the discomfort of their own mediocrity of like, oh, wow, I got this job because I don't ruffle any feathers and because I'm not a threat because my work is not challenging the established order. That's actually a problem. And you should be questioning that. And it's like, you need to either change or get out of that position if you're going to be an ethical person. If I feel like a lot of anti-racism skirts around that issue of ethics of like, what kind of person are you at your core? Because I was even thinking about uh, Glennon Doyle's definition of anti-racism work of like imagining a glass of water. And then when you do anti-racism work, whatever spills out is actually who you are. So if you're getting defensive about being called a racist, then that shows that you have some deep insecurities and unhealed wounds that are not my responsibility to fix. That's for your therapist. <laughs> but literally, it's like, I'm paying 50 bucks a month to a therapist to get my life together. Why can't you do the same? <laughs> therapy is, uh, oh, I guess over here in the UK, again, like therapy is, I don't know, I might have echo chamber situation here. I feel like more people are like, okay, there's something for me here, but it's still so heavily stigmatized, you know? Like, it's still like, oh, but there's nothing wrong with me. Like, I don't have a problem it's very much you know like cause and effect like something happens and you speak to someone about this issue mental health is not the same as breaking your arm i'm sorry like it's not that i wake up and i'm suddenly like oh, okay my arm is broken i need to fix it it's mental health is everything cool <laughs> everything great and then all of a sudden for a couple of weeks you might be feeling more anxious and I feel like a lot of people, especially in this, you know, UK stiff upper lip are just so, you know, predisposed to be like, oh, just push through. It's nothing wrong with me. You know, I have my home and I have my bed and I have my job. And yes, everything is relative. But at the same time, if you're not feeling good, like there are options, especially if you have the financial you know, capabilities to do so, to take care of that. Whereas I feel like it's so stigmatized and the media has a part to play in this, you know, it's like, it's, it's. You know, if there's a terrorist attack, it's like, oh, the, the white man had a mental health problem, which further, you know, perpetuates this idea that there's something really wrong with you if you need a therapist or if you have any mental health problems. Or 
it's you know the crazy person who's not okay in the tv show there's the nuance is not there it's truly it is missing and i think that that's really a problem because you have like this generation i feel like like you know millennials are growing up not knowing how to you know unpack their feelings because i meet so many people who i'm just like how do you not know who you are like how how do you not know why you think and why you feel that way and the only reason i know is because i've been in therapy for five years so it's hard to feel like i can understand and question why i'm doing certain things and there's pattern recognition there so many people are just like oh i don't know why i feel like this or like why i actually am the way i am it's crazy to me and i also have no patience for it it's really bad <laughs> yep no i really love that thing that you said about pattern recognition because we can almost track how people's lives turned out based upon the quality of their mental health and their capacity to self-reflect and identify patterns because i'm looking at people who you know they fall into a marriage having kids having a particular kind of job being quiet at work when they see obvious injustice and it's like that's all a product of your traumas that are accumulating over time that you can't recognize how those past traumas are guiding how you're going to act in this particular moment in the present um i'm losing my train of thought Oh yeah, but just like having the capacity to control the trajectory of your life based upon your ability to recognize patterns. And also, oh yeah, like trauma and the body of like, even the kind of British stiff upper lip of like literally physical stiffness, physical ailments, like IBS, uh, neck issues, uh, you know, chronic gut issues, arthritis, diabetes, high blood pressure, cancer in the long-term, like that's all tied to you stuffing all these feelings down and they get caught in your body and they cause disease because it's caused by inflammation because like the stress responses cause inflammation and particularly for like black women we're we're literally carrying the world on our shoulders but have to look like we're cool honestly it's it's a lot and i'm so thankful for i had one therapist one time and i've recently gotten a, a black woman therapist <clears throat> which has been like really transformative but then also kind of like weird sometimes because then i'm like you remind me of my mom so it's like I feel like I'm being like reprimanded by like my mom and at the same time it's like oh this is a little it's like yes auntie vibes but it's like you work for me <laughs> but no like I really you know people are always like oh is it worth it and I'm like it's the best money I spend on myself sometimes I don't feel like going to therapy or choice sometimes I'm like I don't want mm, I don't want to talk about anything but it's helped it's just helped me grow so much and like i'll say one thing because this is what you know especially women especially you know heterosexual women <clears throat> is that relationships with men i now can really like not only articulate <laughs> but understand why i have dated certain types of men and the types of men i'm interested in and then what i need to do to check myself before, during, and after relationships. And it's difficult. And again, there's that, you know, there's that paradigm situation there again. But like so many people are just, you know, bumbling through life, like dating these people who are not good for them. And then just like, if you're lucky, you end up with someone. If you're incredibly lucky, you end up with someone who works for you and you grow together and, and, and. But like, you know, life isn't, a fairy tale. I know that sounds like really obvious, but like, I feel like there's a generation of women, especially black women, because we know how ghetto it is out here in these online dating streets for black women. The literal research says 
it's crusty out here for black women on dating apps. And it's just like, you need to, you need to know yourself because otherwise you're just going to get like traumatic experience after traumatic experience. And you need to figure out a way to like, at least I believe to be able to disseminate that experience, but then also realize like, not, not like where you're at fault, but like, why do you keep going after the same types of men? Like what is, what is underneath that? Because I truly feel like, you know, like everything else is related to your past or like your, your current situation or whatever. And if you don't have any way to talk about that with someone who can, again, help you spot those patterns or even figure out if there's an actual, you know, ailment behind that, then you're, you know, you're taking this baggage onto potential new relationships, which could be the one that may then just, you know, like blow up in your face. And it's just like, for that reason alone, I'm like, therapy, clutch, please, can we you know, democratize it so everyone has access to it? Yes. And I'm grateful for what Rachel Cargill is doing with the Loveland Foundation, where she's giving Black women free therapy. Um, and even in my own life experiences, like I, for so long, confused attraction with activation or rather uh, activation with attraction of like I'd become so addicted to my stress levels being uh, spiked by people from childhood that I associated that kind of fight or flight response with an intense sexual desire which I also conflated with the possibility of a romantic relationship and I was just in the cycle of like basically seeking a drug of like activation and dysfunction and you know calamity because I had no idea how to like regulate myself in a peaceful relationship like literally in those kind of codependent relationships, you are using the other person as a source of emotional regulation, which is how we often end up in codependent situations of like, you become the enabler to an abusive person and the roles always kind of shift. It's almost like you're a child trying to do adult things. It, it definitely is. And I also think it's like, you know, another thing that I think therapy has really taught me, I'm just so chill on my own. I mean, I'm also an introvert, but I'm also, I'm very happy with my own company. And it's definitely at the point now where it's like, I want a partner. I don't feel like when I was younger, I felt like I needed, it was like, I don't have a boyfriend. Something's wrong with me. I'm not desirable. Blah, de, blah, de, blah, blah. <clears throat> um, and that's quite damaging, right? And it can be damaging to a young black woman or anyone else who's you know, racialized and marginalized where you don't see representations of yourself in media or anywhere. So you start to think, okay, so that makes sense. You know, you know, the hot girl on the TV show never is black. So that makes sense as to why I am not getting any attention either. But then it starts to feel like, you know, this, you start to put it on, like you elevate it and like put it on this pedestal where you're like, well, no, I need a boyfriend because then I'm going to prove everyone else wrong. And that's how you get into really toxic situationships. <clears throat> and I think that um, being able to know the difference between wanting and needing a relationship and what that means for you. And also like crucially knowing when to walk away like I still suck at that well and truly because hey you know entanglements but knowing knowing when to walk away and honestly that goes I think for platonic relationships too because platonic relationships can be toxic as fuck and like I think there's a spectrum between like you know cutting everyone off and whatever but you also have to know when you're like Do you know what no I like no it's a full sentence and like it may hurt me too like I'm going to be upset about this but overall it's going to be a net positive for me and I think therapy helps you 
understand like how to settle in yourself and how to enjoy yourself with like your flaws because you or at least for me I've known what I need to work on you know it's like with my partner I've been like these are my issues and I'm aware of these issues and I'm working on it but like sometimes call me out on it because like you know I have this way of being like well I know my shit and it's like well calm down so you don't know everything um but it also means that I'm just I'm just like happier in myself with like who I am so when you meet someone who you know you're attracted to you're activated by you start you know when I was younger I would start doing all these things to try and make them like this version of me that wasn't me because I wasn't happy or content not even say happy I wasn't just like okay and understanding who I am today and where I'm trying to get to and like I feel like therapy really helps you like you know uncover all those things that you've like swept under the carpet and just been like "Mm, not 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 thinking about that like don't call you I mean don't call me I'll call you um and I also think it's just so it's so important to, to know who you are because otherwise if you don't people can really fuck with you and you know people will be out here trying to start some bullshit and feed off your light. I mean, because for example, I work with undergraduate women of color and also white women too. And I see so much of myself in them in the sense of none of us have been trained how to prioritize having healthy platonic relationships before seeking a romantic relationship. Because through therapy, I had to realize like, I learned how to give and receive love and support through my platonic relationships before I jump into like, you know, the situation of a romantic one. And, um, even when I, when I mentor them, it's like, it's important, I realizing for them to have a source of guidance, mentorship, compassion, support, and love that is not in any way sexual. Like they can get validation from me and support from me without worrying about, oh, I have to be someone that Amanda would like because I'm trying to get her to be attracted to me or whatever. And I feel like I did have that as a young woman with, you know, fantastic black feminist professors and whatnot, but I wish it was just like a built-in part of girlhood where we had those people who were supposed to be there for us and to show us what love is. Absolutely. I mean, I'm Nigerian. Like my, my mom, you know, she passed away a few years ago, but like she did her best and she truly raised a really, you know, bright woman. <clears throat> but at the same time, there was no huggy, huggy, kissy, kissy. I love you. Love you so much. My favorite daughter. Da, 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 da. I mean, I'm not a favorite daughter. I've got two other sisters. So you know, <coughs> doesn't matter. But like, I, I realized through therapy that like, I've never had that. A lot of my love in my relationship with my parents was very much not transactional, but it was like, oh, I brought home, you know, five A's. And it was like, we're so proud of you. Da, da, da. And then it'd be like, where's the A plus though? And I was like, oh, okay, sure. So it's like so much of how I learned to like seek validation was like continually be better, be better, be better, be better. And this has, you know, manifested in um, my my jobs and like how I'm so driven because it literally was drilled into me that like, yes, you can get a B, but next time you're going to be plus, and next time you're going to get an A minus and et cetera, et cetera. And like this notion of like constantly having like the goalposts moving where you'll do one thing and then you need to get to a different level, even though the last time that was the previous level, means that when it comes to, you know, understanding just like what you what you deserve and um, receiving love and like not having to constantly like look and do quite literally do the work for love was just unknown to me, did not know. And so it was only until I went into therapy and I was like talking about these relationships and again, these patterns that my therapist would help, like, you know, highlight and identify, did I realize that I, like, sought men 
who would give me a little crumb and then the goalpost would move and that would be like you know their affection would change or they would you know be hot and cold and I'd be like oh okay you know well this means I gotta do better so I'd be like rolling up the sleeves and like jumping right in so it's like that one type of thing or it's men who you know are emotionally unavailable but we have such an intellectual conversation that I you know mistake this intellectual prowess that we have for you know foundation of a relationship and then I'm getting literally nothing in terms of like how they treat me in a relationship but I'm so accustomed to that so I'm like oh I just have to work for it I have to actually work for that so again that whole like trigger is activated and it's only through therapy that I've been like oh this is some bullshit but also where does this come from and it's not just because I'm unworthy you know because for years it was just like oh well I'm not I'm not good enough unless I'm doing all of these extra things and I would have never have learned any of that unless I had gone through therapy and like it's hard but at least now I know <laughs> yes to all of that I'm just like soaking in the <laughs> the truth I'm like thank god I'm not crazy um and yeah like even I was thinking about this recently like the shifting goalposts are a product of that person's own unstable sense of self meaning they don't actually have a concrete plan in place for themselves so they think that they can just use you as a vessel to kind of act out their dreams and so your attempts to like shore up their image of themselves will always fall flat because they don't even know who they are and like even with the kind of parental dynamic of like why isn't the parent asking the child okay where do you want to go what's your plan and then how can I adapt myself to help get you there because even with my students it's like okay so what do you want to do grad school author artist dancer okay then let me get you the resources that will help you get to that and like as you you know learn and change I can adapt the strategy based upon what you want like to be able to practice saying, here's what I want, and then I'm being able to have support to be able to get it, I feel like is an important lesson, especially for women of color. Because like, it's not like we don't talk about our problems or our sadness or our dreams, it's just that people don't <laughs> give a fuck and we just kind of begin hiding it and being small. But I think it's also that thing of like, you know, are black women allowed to be soft? Or do we have to be strong, independent, saving the world, you know? There's this whole believe black women, listen to black women. We told you so, particularly in the US, especially around things like civic duty and voting. It's like, oh, black women are did this, you know, with, you know, Stacey and Georgia and everything. And where's this, I wanna rest, hello? Not every day, sometimes damsel in distress. Like truly, I'm, I said this to my boyfriend the other day. I was like, me? No, don't put strong and me in the same, because no, I rebuke that. Because when you have this notion or this image consistently pushed on you that you're strong and you're resilient. If I say the word resilient one more time, I don't want to be resilient. Like, I don't want to have shit to come back from. No, why do I have to have like, yeah, I've got a backbone, but does that backbone have to be exposed <laughs> every single day? No, sometimes rest. And I think that, you know, again, therapy has helped me realize that like this, the strength I would wield was harming me. It was harming me because everyone was saying, you're so strong, you're so resilient, da, 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 when, you know, I was diagnosed with depression, that when I told people I was diagnosed with depression, there was not an ounce of sympathy. There was just, oh, you'll bounce back, you're so strong. And that really harmed me because I was like, well, I don't feel that strong right now but everyone's telling me i'm strong so then like it was like my reality was warped and i think that you know these messages that we hear from ourselves from media from our loved ones who really don't mean any harm can be really damaging and i truly feel like the only way 
to like sit with that and unpack it and figure out, you know, what it actually means for you is in therapy. And if you don't have that, then like, I really hope people can get it because it's been transformative for me and other people who I know who've had it. And, you know, this is why the whole mental health conversation, like it's so frustrating when it's just this very like lack of nuance binary thing of just like, oh, you're crazy or, you know, the word, oh, you're depressed. And it's like, yes, you can be depressed, but you can have social anxiety or you can just be sad or just have low mood. Like there are levels, there's a whole DSM IV. <laughs> yes, totally. And I mean, I remember when I was in maybe high school or middle school, when Issa's, Issa Rae's first show, um, Awkward Black Girl came out and I was like, thank God for this show because I too have major, you know, social anxiety, super awkward, but I do a really good job of masking it because I was also recently diagnosed with ADHD like two years ago because I was literally about to fail out of a PhD program because I was like, how come everyone can just like sit in their desk for eight hours, but I can't, what am I doing? Am I stupid? Um, and just realizing how much labor I'd put into looking like this very confident, assured, resilient, strong person. When in reality, I was literally being drained so much every day by the labor of doing that. And I feel like Black women don't get the help and support we need because of the power of our performance. And not to blame it on us, but rather like we've been raised to expect staff to perform in that way to be able to receive love or support. And it's like, when we perform that way, the love that we get is actually just conditional and transactional and hollow. Like when I acted like that, the people around me didn't love me for me, they loved me for what I did for them, which is why I always felt so alone and like despondent and depressed. Exactly that. And like, Something I was recently talking to my therapist about is that people always say, you're so intimidating. And I'd be like, hmm? And she was like, are you intimidating or are they intimidated? Oprah style. <laughs> and I was like, I don't think I'm intimidating. You know, I'm not coming into rooms or Zoom rooms yelling and screaming and mm, mm, mm. And she was like, so why do you think they find you intimidating? And I was like, I think because I have my shit together, my T's are crossed, my I's are dotted. I, you know, I, I'm really driven. And I think that does come across. And she was like, yeah, so I, maybe this intimidation is more about them than it is about you. And I was like, no, I think it is, but it's just, I get this feedback all the time. Oh, I'm so intimidated. Or like, I was really worried. I find you intimidating. She was like, but that's not for you. She was like, unless you feel like you're actively doing something and like, as in your behavior, you have said something, done something, written to someone, behave in a way that can be seen as intimidating other than just because you work hard and you're driven and you like you know you you have your shit together then that's not for you and it was really like powerful just be like you know I don't actually have to pick that up you're coming to me and saying oh you're intimidating but have I done any have I spoken because if I speak then maybe I will be intimidating but right now I'm not doing anything you've scrolled through my Twitter and see my website and see my LinkedIn and created this version of me in your head and potentially compared it to yourself and so you feel for whatever reason you're projecting but that's not I haven't done anything I haven't done anything to you to make you feel like I'm an intimidating person but it's still at the same time logically in my head I can say that but because again I'm so used to I have to be better I'm like oh well I get this feedback that I'm intimidating all the time so what I need to work on what do I, what do I need to do my therapist was like but you've told me that you you don't really do anything it's just that people say when they first meet you that that's what they feel She's like, so why are you now rolling up your sleeves to do some more inner work to like make yourself less intimidating? And it was just like, 
again, I would have never caught that. I would have just been like, you know, sad. Why does everyone think I'm intimidating? What am I doing? Maybe I should talk less. Maybe I should, you know, take up less space. Oh my God. Yeah. Cause like a recent revelation I've had is like, I have to look at the life of the person who's giving me feedback and see if it's, you know, going in a trajectory that I also want to go in. Because oftentimes the problem when people call us intimidating is that we are giving them a lesson that they're not ready to accept yet. Because your work is, you know, not only just like intellectually rigorous, but also compassionate, uh, provocative, creative, you know, deeply uh, empathetic and compassionate and like ready for change. And for them, their definition of rigor is actually just total conformity, mediocrity by the book, by the rules. And it's like, you intimidate them because you showed them a future that could exist if they were brave enough to grasp it. Mm. Like your, like yourself shows their cowardice and they don't like that. That's really interesting. However, last night I was talking to a really good friend of mine and I was just having this revelation yesterday where I was like, you know what, I'm doing my master's, I'm working this job that I'm really passionate about, you know, the issue area. And I was also redoing my website <clears throat> and I'm thinking about starting a YouTube and, 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 and then in my head, I was just like, for what, Tammy? And usually my head's like, well, because you do your PhD, you're going to open your think tank, da, 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 then you're going to live your life. And this time I didn't have an answer. So it, it stood there and it was like, you know, ricocheting for what, for what, for what, what's the end game? And I think I mentioned my mom, my mom died, she was quite young, you know, 56, had just finished her PhD. <clears throat> and that you know losing a parent and I think being thrown into grief or not expecting it it completely changed my perception of life and reality and you know these endless years that I just assumed that I had and it was suddenly like oh shit no like this shit can be over like in any moment um and so this has you know changed my concept a little bit of like what I what I want to do with my life but yesterday this for what kept ricocheting in my head and I couldn't think of an answer and then I was like do I really like you know if I go back to the tech policy thing you know do I do I really want to impact change or, or impart change and the answer is yes I do but then the second question was like at what cost so it's you know it's yes I I'm gonna do my PhD you know I think and you know I don't often set out to do something and not do it eventually so you know so I probably will have a think tank but after that think tank, am I going to then enjoy life or am I going to then be like, okay, what else do I need to do? So like, because, and I say this because at the, in the little corner of my head, there's a version of a life where it's like, I trained to be a personal trainer a few years back. Um, and I've always loved, you know, I lived in Melbourne for, for, for a while. And there was always these like cute little boutique, you know, personal training, functional training spaces that had little cafe like mums and whatever would come through and I just love being in those spaces it was just you know it was truly like health but I, I love a health vibe and I've always kind of felt like oh I'd really love to just like open something like that or you know in a different life I've always really thought about becoming a counselor myself um and just like having you know a virtual practice and, and helping other black women <clears throat> but it's not the same rigor required in that like I can impart change to individual levels at like, you know, the health fitness idea I have or the counselor idea I have. But for the work I'm currently on, it's at a structural. I want to change tech policy. So it's much bigger. It's a much, you know, more more wicked problem. 
Um, but the, the problem is, is that this one means I'm never resting because I'm constantly improving myself and, and proving myself in these rooms that I, you know, either don't have access to or have like broken down a door to get into. Whereas the, the latter is more, I create a service or a business for myself that I can help people with. And then I just live. And so like the journey feels much shorter. But yesterday I was thinking about all of this and I really was just like, why have I decided that my my role and what is, you know, in terms of the drive and the hustle and this girl boss fucking like culture that we found ourselves in, that I have to subscribe to it to be seen as intellectual and smart and worthy. Like, why can't I just have my goddamn boutique fitness gym and live like why have I also subscribed to this notion that I have to change the world? I don't have the answer, but I just think it's a really interesting question that I'm like, hmm. Yeah, and that's valid. And I mean, first of all, I want to acknowledge, you know, I'm so sorry for the loss of your mother. I know that's not easy to lose a parent so young and oh, you've done an incredible job of, you know, healing and processing that and like spreading light and joy into the world from this incredible loss. I recently had a friend last year passed by suicide and she was 25. And I had a similar thing of being plunged into grief and completely reformatting my life of like, what the hell have I been doing? This is all completely shallow and meaningless. Um, but just to your other points, just, I wonder if you could do both because I'll bring out Rachel Cargill again because I stand her when I want to be here, but she's got her Loveland Foundation. She's got her like educational work or structural work, but she's also got her bookstore in Akron, Ohio. And she's got her, you know, work with ease and abundance and rest and wellness. Like she's been able to break herself into these different pieces where she gets to do her, you know, hustle work, but also her true relaxation work. And like even her being able to structure it around, okay, when I do structural work, I will benefit from this financially to be able to support myself and live in ease. And that's kind of what I want to do with Define and Empower of like, we have the think tank, the consulting collective where we can bring our money in, but we can also have a space where we can have, you know, yoga studios, personal training studios, counseling offices, a bookstore, like, I mean, almost like a college campus, but not as evil and fucked up. Just, I want to be able to make space for women of color and specifically black women to explore multiple parts of themselves that frankly, we kind of couldn't in our young years. Like I want the next generation to be able to come up with the assumption that I can be a complex, you know, multifaceted person and be able to explore that and be rewarded for it. So. I totally think that it doesn't have to be an either or it can be, you know, why not have both? I think we talk about Rachel Cargon and even yourself, Amanda, I see really how they all come together. Whereas mine seems so separate, you know, tech policy and a fitness gym. I'm like, eh. I'm not a white man. I can't finesse. <laughs> I can't finesse, you know, a series, a series B <laughs> funding around to, you know, somehow I'll tie the dots with some bullshit, you know, sound fight. Um, I just think it's more of a question that I'm finding for myself. Um, as I get, you know, older, I say older, I'm 32, as I, but as I grow older, and as I literally age, is that, you know, work needs to be interesting to me, and I need to be paid what I'm worth, and also what I would like, but at the same time, it doesn't have to consume me, and I don't mean consume in the, like, workaholic, I mean consume in that it is all I strive for in the pursuit of, let's say, greatness. <clears throat> it's also fine to rest you might notice that like my throat's a little like raspy i've been a bit sick because i've been overworking and so yesterday was it yesterday or was it wednesday it was wednesday i said to my team i was like you know what? i'm really ill i'm not gonna be able to work today and even though i had told my team i was ill and i was in bed in my head i was still like okay so what 
other little things can I do from bed, from my iPad, whether it's live admin or like I told her as we do my website, I was like, maybe I can do the sitemap for that. And I was like, rest. And it was so, I had to keep telling myself, watch YouTube, watch Netflix. You are ill. You literally need to just do nothing. And I did nothing that day, but it was honestly, I cannot remember. Like, unless it was, I have booked a holiday to do nothing. Fine. When it's like, you are sick, you need time to rest. This actual notion of resting to recuperate, my brain is like, sorry, I don't know her. And I mean, like, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like resting time is when like the pain floods back in, which is probably why I avoid it. It's like, I literally always have, you know, a podcast going, some work going, some list going in my head. So I don't have to go back and think about certain things. And I mean, even with, you know, years of therapy under my belt, I'm still trying to figure out how to slip into that, you know, contemplative meditative mode without feeling like I'll be um, drowned or overwhelmed by the flood of it. Uh, yeah again actually like even thinking about how do I integrate moments of mindfulness into my day so that I will not be shocked when I am resting and like an uncomfortable idea comes into my head that's so true and something that I've like been doing recently like I got I rescued a dog and a greyhound um and he's he's like he is lazy one but two he'll he'll be like ready to sleep for the rest of for the evening until the next morning by like 9 9 30 and this has made me start going to bed at 9 30 which is like i haven't gone to bed at 9 30 since i literally was maybe 14 but it's just i don't know it is gonna sound really cringe but like somehow being up so early and going to bed uh earlier as well has just made me have more of like an appreciation for like every day whereas before because I was just going to bed like discombobulated with all the blue light and exactly that getting you know four or five shitty hours of sleep waking up at like six thirty seven, like a zombie stumbling into the morning um it was you know the days were merging into each other and it's not that's not happening because we're still in the panini press but it's more just the fact that there's a delineation between night and day now and I have more of a routine and so like you know I'm not going to write one of those books where it's like you know five habits of early morning people but like I do see some of the madness I do understand it now totally and I feel like this is also where you know like depression comes in in the sense of you know I was diagnosed with dysthymia when I first went to my therapist and it's like how much of my behaviors for the past several years were actually the product of depression. It's almost like a symbiotic relationship of like my routines that were zombifying me were both a response to and catalyst of that depression to where I couldn't even realize that my behaviors were hurting me because I thought that that was who I was. And like, even that was another problem of like not being able to separate, you know, my mentally ill self or traumatized self from who I am slash want to be. I mean, sorry to hear about that and I'm glad you you'll be able to work through it but I think no it's just I think I just have this this belief that as black women we truly need all the support that we can get and I don't just mean like geeking with your girlfriends I mean like true support I mean like and to have that support sometimes it means you're gonna have difficult conversations and also sometimes with yourself like truly because you know you know 
depression and these illnesses, particularly like the black community, African American communities or you know, black British communities, they're not seen as like real illnesses because, you know, our ancestors and our grandparents and our parents, like what's what that like I didn't have that. Like what are you talking about? And then so this continues to be trickled down where we're minimizing or, you know, we're refusing to believe that there are real problems that we have. <clears throat> and I think the way that you you mitigate this is you just have access to better support systems and i'm saying that as like you know a middle class black woman who does have access to support systems so it's very easy for me to be like oh i'm gonna get a counselor i'm gonna go you know get a physiotherapist and use my private health plan blah blah blah, blah. but like that's what i feel like you know true structural change looks like it's not you know this whole notion of like black capitalism it's like hello everyone suffers under capitalism I don't care if Rihanna is, you know, now the most wealthy black musician in the world. I mean, I do kind of care because, you know, I definitely stand Rihanna. However, I'm not I'm not taking this as a sign of progress. Like it's a sign of um, vanity progress. Yes. OK, now we are allowed to earn some checks, you know, finally. But that's not a sign of structural you know, change or equity because there are still people with haves and have nots. So like, I'm not, I'm just not for this whole notion of like black capitalism and like, I don't know, maybe it's gonna get me canceled, but like this whole buy black owned, I get it. But at the same time, is this really changing anything structurally or are we continuing to see capitalism as the mechanism for justice? And mm, I don't think it is. And so it's like, yes, okay. I can seek out, you know, it's the whole notion of like buy local. Yes, buy local because these conglomerates, these corporations like Amazon are truly fucking us up. But me giving more money into this one black individual business is not actually changing anything for any of my other people. Truly, it's really not. And I know it's hard to be like, okay, so how do I fucking, you know, in the UK, we've got this Tory ass government who are trash, truly trash. But it's not, I don't want to be like stay woke, but it's more like, learn more about these systems of oppression, right? Because that's how, you know, education truly can transform a nation. And I think it's more about this, this feeling that I have that you know, like black, by black owned and all these campaigns towards it are a form of awareness and education. And there's not a lot of awareness and education, you know, talking about decolonizing, for example, which can be incredibly transformative. Yeah, I mean, I think that your analysis is brilliant. I mean, we're not able to really question the underlying like political or like ethical reasons why we're buying black even the idea of buying local it's like we should buy local because we want to support the community okay well then who is in the community what's going on in the community what are the hierarchies here what are the traumas what are the psychological issues going on and i feel like this is also where your work with personal training and counseling would come in because i feel like that would actually be a version of structural change if you were to make these services available to lower class black people who want to break cycles of intergenerational trauma and it's like the structural change happens with the life of every person that you change because they're then awakened to even being able to almost like see in more colors if that makes sense like the spectrum of what they can see and imagine widens which is why in my work as like a like feminist literary person the work of you know a tony morris and octavia butler is so powerful because like they literally changed the way i viewed the world and it became my mission to try and show that same vision to other people and i feel like that's kind of maybe why we're here maybe not to save the world but like to show how broadly we can see, which is a gift. It is, but sometimes I'm like, girl, leave me alone. <laughs> At the same time, I'm just like, don't, don't call me, don't email me, don't tweet me, and I get it. But like, 
sometimes I think about, you know, I, I told my mom, but like, it's crazy because we're so similar. Like I truly am my mother's daughter. Um, and I say this because, you know, sometimes we'd have these conversations and, you know, she did her PhD on um, immigration in Canada versus the UK and these, you know, immigrants who come from, let's say, India who have, who are scientists and then they get to Canada and they're blocked in getting, you know, um, an equivalent job in Canada because they don't have this quote unquote Canadian experience. Um, what does it actually mean? She's a critical race theory in her PhD. Um, but it was so funny because I remember we'd have these conversations like this and da, 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 and she'd be all fired up, she'd be doing this. And then like the next day she'd be like, I'm tired. She'd leave me alone. <laughs> she'd be like, I don't care. She'd say this thing and she'd say crap shit. She'd be like, I don't give a shit about that crap shit anymore. And I'd be like, huh, huh? like what, huh? like, huh? And I get it now because it's, it's like tiring. And it's also, I think part of the range. It's like, yes, I can go toe to toe with you about critical race theory. And the next day I'm gonna watch, you know, um, this TV show we used to watch called like, what's it called? Like choose the dress or like say yes to the dress. She loved that show. Um, and I am the same person, but sometimes I just wanna watch say yes to the dress and like eat my nibbles. And that is also fine. But I think as like black women, we're not afforded that. You know, it's like you always constantly have to be on. People are always asking for your labor, whether it's like emotional or otherwise. Um, and I think like I'm trying to get better at myself, telling myself that me being able to just rest and chill is also fine. Like I don't have to have this five-year plan that I'm going to execute and be like, done, 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 because I will just have another five-year plan. Like maybe a 15-year plan, Tenny, and maybe two of those years are just like you chilling out. Like who knows? Like maybe two of those years are just you like building a little boutique fitness club. <laughs> like that's always fine. But I think it's because, especially in the age of social media, you see all your peers and they're like, I have an announcement and like small announcement to make. And I'm a part of that person. I have also made announcements in this panorama <coughs> because part of it is at the same time you have to sell yourself because we live in a capitalist society. So it's like, hello, consultant here, please pay my bills. Um, but it's just being able to have the luxury, I think. You know, like I met this woman a few years ago and she was just like, no, I don't really pay attention to the news. And I was shook. I was like, what do you, what do you mean? She was like, well, I don't really need to like if anything really big happens like I'll you know I'll find out and make its way to me and like yes you know yes she was white so there's a different level of privilege there but I want that for me I don't want to know what's happening I don't want to go on Twitter and, and hear what black Twitter is talking about and and be in the know sometimes not in the know sometimes be living my bougie life enjoying my cocktails because that's peace and that's rest and like, frankly, peace is what we need to be able to do the work that we were put here to do. Because I mean, hopefully I'm not sounding ignorant, but I've been really fascinated by the figure of like the griot in West African societies of like, you know, the person in the community who is tasked with passing down the stories from one generation to the next. And like, that is their job. And they're protected because of that, because they have a gift. And I just, like, I wish that we had a similar respect for Black women who have those kind of natural gifts, because it sounds like your mother was also a prophet or a griot in her own way. And so are you. And I feel like, so am I and in, my, in my own family. And it's like, why don't we recognize that as a power as opposed to just something that we take for granted? Like people with that power need to have peace and support. Have you seen um, Deepa Iyer's like roles, roles with social justice? Like roles no, in no. Made this framework where there's basically like exactly that. There's like prophets, like storytellers, 
there's the organizers, there's the healers, <clears throat> and how every person and every individual in the community has a different role when it when it comes to social change. Um, and I think, I just think what you said there is just, it really reminds me of that, you know, that's in your social justice framework, but also just like in who you are, who you are within a community. Like not everyone is that organizer who's not out on the streets. Me, it's not me, I'm not on any streets, I'm in my bed. Um, <laughs> and some people are healers and some people are writers. And I think, you know, not only manifesting that, but like leaning into that and like, you know, leaning into your power as, as what it is should be fine but i think again in this age of social media we every, everyone's a hustler everyone's a founder everyone's an entrepreneur and to tie it back to the whole like you know the whole black capitalism thing i do have to say it's difficult to not get sucked into it because capitalism is the only thing we're offered as a mechanism for change so it's often like you know pull your bootstraps up earn some money and then this money you know because with, with money and with wealth does change your life so i get it that that's why so many people are like okay well i'm not going to be able to be the prime minister because mm, <laughs> the structures that are involved up in there are too huggy huggy but maybe i can create like a little dtc brand from instagram and make some money and put that money away and invest in that money and change my financial lane <laughs> you know um and that's why the whole black capitalism thing is really attractive um, but again, I still think that's because we are not taught other ways, you know, back to the radicalism question that or point that I made is that like, you know, I was talking to another friend to this, again, in the tech policy frame, but it's like, why do we have to say to these platforms, okay, work with us, you know, be more accountable, okay, like, come with more tools to improve, you know, online hate, and make sure people are able to block words more effectively, like, why do we believe that we have to do this step-by-step -step process like why can we not you know abolitionists burn the whole thing down and start from the beginning and i was talking with my friend and she was like it's hard because it's like which tactic can you take that will actually move the needle yes there's also you know burn the whole thing down i'm with you with that energy but at the same time it's like or is it back to the lobby and the governments because if you do you know effectively yell loud enough then they will make a little piece of a change so like there's legislation coming out in europe called the digital services act um which will regulate some platforms so that is some change but it's just this tension where at least i have where i'm like oh it feels like i'm still you know aligning with the status quo and like basically saying okay fine i will go through your legislative process and i will agree that i will like you know try to lobby this piece of this regulatory mechanism to make sure that platforms are held more accountable when really i want to be like you work for me you <laughs> you were elected you are supposed to listen to me and like you know part of me is like if i just mobilize the public and let these people know that actually you know we're pissed off with the lack of let's say tech policy change that there has been then maybe they will stop cataloging to the you know the big tech you know lobbyists that are coming to europe and spending like what's like 19 million or something but i think that's the whole thing like it's either the status quo and trying to change it from within and then like you know put enough pressure so that it cracks or it's just light it up truly yeah and i mean i'm even wondering like what if there's room for both in the sense of you know my lane is certainly not legal negotiation policy work you know operating inside systems but rather divesting completely and making my own platform but kind of like you were talking about earlier about recognizing our role in the community of 
they're playing their role and that's not really my gift, but here's what I'm doing over here. And, you know, you can come over to me whenever you're ready, but just be building that space. Yeah, I think you're right. There is both. I think I'm just at the point where I'm tired, particularly within my, my sector where I'm just like, I've been working in this field for, you know, half a decade now, and I've not really seen any change. And I've not really seen any change within the orgs that are supposed to be, you know, on our side and the ones pushing for their change. So I'm like, so why is that? Are there too many people who are too, you know, really, again, if you want to drive change, and sometimes that means you have to make decisions that are not beneficial for you. And I think that there's a lot of that happening. So I'm just like, you know what, time's up. Time's up. So it reminds me again, like, you know, Nigerian parents, you get a certain amount of time to do something that give you a certain amount of <laughs> chances to do something. Then they're like, nah, <laughs> you had your chance. I'm coming in now. I'm <laughs> starting from the beginning. But um, with Define and Empower, I, you know, we were talking about collab- collaboration opportunities. I know. So basically, I've just like embedded myself in yours and Anastasia's lives. I've just been like, hello, you two look cool. <laughs> I will be friends with you. You're cool too. That's how I met her. I was just like, oh, I found you from a hashtag. Hello there. <laughs> I'm so glad you came into our lives. Like, go ahead. No, I was just like wondering. So what, um, tell me more about it. So like what, what's in the pipeline? If you can tell me what's in the pipeline. I hate that word, but you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, okay. So this week I had a TikTok that went viral that was explaining the TikTok strike about Megan Stallion's spot shit. And so what? now like... Yeah, it's, it's, it's like fucking wild and now like buzzweed oh sorry not buzzweed not buzzfeed newsweek guardian uh and like now this news have been reaching out to me so those articles will probably go live like next week so hopefully that will bring even more um attention to the page and i want to be able to like a make a podcast eventually make a youtube channel but then also like okay i have multiple things going I want to do like a summer school again next year because we finished this one for this summer. And then I also want to be able to um, like work with, work with companies like Spotify to like consult on podcast projects, but also to create content for them and to also host like workshops in schools and hospitals and uh, companies about here's how your workplace culture is deeply racist and here's how we can center the perspectives of your black employees. Cause I want to be able to go in, interview like the workers of color and be like, here's where they're mad and do it anonymously and then be able to apply a system that changes that culture because so many folks who are working in these offices cannot speak up because they'll get fired because their health care depends upon that job that's crazy oh first of all congratulations i love that um that reel you did and i was just like a scream and i messaged you and i was like lol then i was also just like you know the, the attempts the attempts that have been made it's hmm it's wild but I you know I messaged you because I was like I mentioned this in a paper I recently submitted where it was like talking about black creators or like who's called a creator who's called an influencer and memes and you know who is the producers of of this digital work and then who gets to profit from it um because really you've seen it's you know it's not little black girls (laughs) who are you know sometimes making these dances that's that's for sure um but that's so exciting because on twitter you know, the Black Twitter discourse was that a lot of media weren't talking about this. And someone made the point in particular, they're like, no, Black media is talking about this. And someone was like, because a lot of Black media is owned by a parent company that is white media, or, you know, owned by someone who's white. And so they typically don't have, again, the blind spots. They don't have their finger to the pulse. They're not understanding effectively these these power symmetries that are at play here. And they don't have, to be quite frank, the range to understand. So I'm really gooped 
for that to happen. Um, and I loved the summer school concept and I wish I could have, you know, participated or supported, but I was chained to my desk like a summer student myself. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. I mean, actually, like, what do you think that we should do next? Because like, I, I want to keep the framework kind of loose so we can bring in a whole lot of people from different skill backgrounds, but I also want to I don't know, have a guiding mission that basically gives women of color a platform to be able to support themselves economically while doing the artistic and otherwise work that they love and just figuring out, okay, how do we make money off of that? I feel like Black feminism and Black feminist theory, um, that's a theoretical framework I use in my dissertation. And before I read Hill Collins, I like, oh, I'm out myself here, but I just, if you had told me that, I would have been like, really <laughs> like really um but when i read hill collins uh patricia hill collins obviously for anyone who ends up maybe watching this and not understanding what the fuck i'm talking about um <laughs> i was it was just like well duh like of, of course you know black women's knowledge production can be theoretical and of course we can use our insights not just black women like you know truly I feel like anyone who has a lived experience like that can be a framework for x y and z but I think that what it's really is really interesting is being able to use it in a more contemporary sense today to understand particularly what's happening around issues of race and gender and digital media that's why the summer school I thought was so interesting and particularly for academics as well because Again, in thinking about like media theory and communications theory, it's definitely one that is often seen as like alternative. So like I submitted for this conference and like even the positioning of it was like, and any other alternative theories talk about like platform governance. And I submitted a piece and I was, you know, accepted, but under the sort of like, because I had used black feminist theory as a framework. Um, and I think that's bullshit because it's still othering, right? It's still like delineation between oh, what is a true, you know, critical theory and what is, you know, another one that's kind of popular but doesn't have the same rigor for whatever fucking reason. Um, so I would, I, I would say like that, that's really transformed, at least for me. But I also think for other particularly, you know, racialized and marginalized people, learning about black feminist theory can really help them understand how, how possibly their marginalization can be used um, in the academy and can also help them, you know, thinking about Asian Americans in, in particular, in a sense, because I think the more people we have breaking down the lexicon and the language of academia in a contemporary sense, the better, like the barriers to engagement with academic work is bananas. I didn't even realize, I did not realize the hagginess <laughs> that is academic literature. But you know, I think a lot about you know what I want to use my PhD to do, why am I writing this you know master's dissertation? And it's because I want regular regular folk to read it and understand and to be equipped with that knowledge because it is a privilege to be an academic and to be in these spaces, even if it is violent as fuck. We still made it. And so, yeah, I know. I think, I think the Black Feminist Summer School, I love it. Thank you. And I'm, oh, go ahead. I just said, keep going. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, I mean, that's really my goal because like, I can't tell if I want to reform the university system or destroy it because some of our work could be going into a university and doing a, a total top-down redesign of like, here's how your admin are racist, here's how your faculty are racist, here's how your classes are, you know, designed to marginalize Black feminist thought and here's how you incorporate Black feminism into every aspect of your university or even like consulting with the universities to help them create uh, women's studies departments. But at the same time, I'm like, why can't I just make my own and somehow get certification? Because I was realizing the only reason why these schools matter is because they've been around a lot, a long, sorry, they've been around long enough to be able to get some kind of certification. But like their money is all from you know, slavery, violence, illegal means. Just why would I ethically want to be involved with a institution that is so against my values? Yeah, it is, it's again this thing where, you know, it's like, can it be both? Can you, can you break it down and can you also, you know, not reform it or like change it from the inside? Um, I, the only thing is that it just sounds tiring. It just sounds like work and like it will be work. And I guess if it's something you're called to do, then part of it is your passion and your drive. Um, but yeah, I know academia is just, like I said, I'm coming to collect my doctor and I'm, I'm trying to bounce. I'm truly, pass go, don't collect 200. <laughs> Like truly, no, I just, there's nothing, I don't really feel like teaching. I'm really in seeing my PhD as a selfish time for myself to focus in on my projects that I want and to get, you know, the resources that I need to get from being in the academy and then to like dip set. Because everything I've heard truly, it's a no for me, fam. Like, no. But it's really interesting because I also... I think I would have applied to US schools if basically if I'd had my shit together faster. Um, Y'all have application timelines, higgy hoggy AF. December? No. <laughs> mm -mm. No, ma'am. <laughs> no, ma'am. Um, in a panoramic? Absolutely no. <laughs> um, but there's just something about, you know, I work, like my, my work is in the broad digital humanities, race and technology field. And in the US, there are just so many more black scholars black uh, women and men um in the uk it's like crickets truly tumbleweed and i hate that and, but also it's like okay so maybe like i can i can come up and be one of those people in that space but at the same time i don't want to be in a space by myself hello like <laughs> just oh here kiki but who am i talking to no one okay that sounds fun whereas in the u.s there's already like this community here um, and it is multiracial as well. And there's just like, you know, Ruha Benjamin, Noble, Timnit Gabrud, there, you know, Dr. A, there's so many people who are working on these issues and collaborating and writing and creating new like black futures, black technological futures that I'm like, yes, yeah, I wanna be there. And then it's like, well, over here <laughs> in the United Kingdom, is racism a thing? You know, we're, we're still there. That's where we're at. You know, can AI be racist? <laughs> um, so yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, I, I don't want to be part of it, but at the same time, can I come? <laughs> Girl, I got a jet. I'm going to get home. I'm going to look after my dog. I'm going to go to the movies tonight. Yay! I don't have energy to do things anymore because <laughs> I'm going to bed at 9.30. <laughs> And realizing that your energy is finite. Like I, I, I appreciate you cutting off this call in this way because you're showing me that you're human. And this is a fantastic conversation. Like, okay, Chica, have a great day. 
Talk to you later. Okay. Thanks, you too. Bye.